Hello and welcome to the Shiny New Object podcast. My name is Tom Ollerton and this is a podcast about the future of marketing. Every week I have the pleasure and the privilege of interviewing one of the leaders of our industry and this week is no different. I'm speaking to Christina Kaganer, who is Global VP of Commerce, Data and Analytics at Beamley Coty. We were introduced by Dan Brain and the gang at Madfest. Christina is going to be on stage at Madfest this week uh, on Thursday at 10.45 a.m. So if you're not in the UK or you don't have a ticket, tough because it's sold out. Um, Christina, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's your first podcast you just told me a few minutes ago. Yeah, it's my first one. So I'm very nervous to hear what my voice sounds like on recording. <laughs> Uh, and uh, we're, I'm actually recording this in St. Pancras Station, so hopefully that if there's any train sounds, then uh, that's not um, that's not a special effect. Oh, there's one right on cue. Brilliant. So, Christina, so people who aren't familiar with uh, who you are and what you do, can you please give the audience a little bit of an overview? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've been about... I've been at Cody for about four years, back and forth between Beamley and Cody. Um, my career prior to this has always been analytics, but since entering Cody, it's become much more overall. I originally joined to build out the in-house programmatic um, and have gone on to do different types of programs, including globe, scaling out our global DMP role, um, and most recently working on our digital transformation program and turning that into a technology offering that I'll be speaking about on Thursday. Can you just help me and the audience understand the, the relationship between Beamly and Coty? Because you said you sort of been between those two things. And I have an idea, but if you could clear that up, that'd be ace. Yeah, absolutely. So Cody bought Beamly about um, now four years back. I was one of the first hires post-acquisition. They were originally bought as the in-house digital agency um, Beamly has both a MarTech arm and a agency arm. So there's programmatic and creative activation that happen as part of Beamly. But then there's also the team that I sit on, which is product and engineering. Um, so we focus on building tech and scalable solutions. So we continue to do work for Cody. We also do work for other people. Um, and my role is particularly interesting because I was at Cody specifically running the digital transformation program uh, alongside my boss, Jason Forbes, who is the CEO of Beamly and also the chief media and digital officer of Cody. Um, when we noticed that there was a real opportunity to innovate with analytics, which is something almost no one ever gets to say. So for me, it's been really exciting to um, turn that into a real tech platform that Cody can use. So we'll get back into the role a bit later on as we go through the conversation. So we're going to ask you the getting to know you questions. So first question, what is the most useful thing that you've bought with your own money that you use for work? So this is kind of, it's not one single thing. It's always been a, I would say an evolution of things. Ever since I first started working, I've had this thirst for under there and I find that startups and little technology companies often have the best and I've always wanted to give them a try 
So what I find to be one of the best things that I've ever done in my career is every single little startup that you can imagine in whatever space I'm working in. I have invested in piloting it and I've usually spent my own dollars to do so. Um, so I've tried every social analytics tool you can imagine that used to be available for free when that was hot. Now I have uh, Google Cloud platform accounts that I use to spin up clusters on the weekends, but I find that hands-on element to always give me the edge of, uh, around people who only talk about it in theory. So, so you spend your own money on trialing ad tech? Of course. So surely what that... I've never heard anyone say that. that's fantastic. So like, what's your budget? Like how, how much of your hard earned are you prepared to put behind a trial? Uh, you know, you'll have to talk to my husband about that one. He's the finance department. <laughs> right. Okay. Brilliant. And, and what have been the, uh, like the notable standout trials you've done and, to, and what have been the ones you're like, Oh, that really wasn't worth it. Uh, I mean, a lot of the companies that people say are market leaders in um, things like particularly around community management, I would say almost never felt that, like they were worth it. Some of the stuff that I have found to be really strapping are things like keyword tools. Um, so I've paid for a tool called keywordtool.io for the last four or five years now. I can't say it's the best tool in the entire world, but it gets the job done. And whenever I want to know something's relative interest, uh, I can always log in and take a look. There's also, again, I've come from an analytics background. So there's also this desire for me to understand how other people think. Uh, so sometimes in that vein, I'll actually run a quick Google survey or another panel provider <laughs> to validate if what I'm thinking is what other people think as well. Right, and you'll and you happily put your own money behind that to, to prove your point. Yeah, so actually, funny story about that. My husband and I uh, moved house about four or five months ago now, and he really wanted a rug in the front room, and I really didn't. And so <laughs> he knew that the only way to convince on a survey around how great rugs are. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so he ran a survey about how great rugs are? Yeah, absolutely. And who, and who, and who was the target audience for that survey? I think he just went with general population in the UK. Yeah, not okay. getting too specific. <laughs> and what was the uh, what was the feedback? Well, so this is the other funny part is it came back with um, they give you a quote of how much it would cost to get to a, a sample that you would accept. And he came in the front room and he showed me the survey. It was a great survey, but he said actually it would have cost more than the rug. So I just decided I'll buy a rug, and if you don't like it, throw it out. <laughs> right. Right. That is possibly the most nerdy couple thing I've ever heard in my life, but I celebrate that. That is fantastic. Right. So, so you have a mentality of saying yes to things apart from rugs and you say yes to new technology, uh, yes to trialing things, yes to putting your own dollar on it. But what have you become better at saying no to in the last few years? I think I've just become better at saying no to things that won't benefit me or the people around me. Uh, so when I, you know, probably five years ago, I was very eager to please and I wanted everyone to feel heard and I wanted to smile and I wanted everyone to feel good about the decisions. I have quickly learned that that's the quickest way to burn everyone around you out, including yourself. So if I know something won't work, something's just basically a use of time rather than for something that's going to benefit everyone else. 
I will be the first to challenge that. And I'm happy to have a debate about it. Um, but I don't want to do work for the sake of saying we did work. I wanted to have meaningful outputs. And so what are your criteria for knowing something that's not going to work? Like, how do you, do you do this on feel or do you have like a criteria? How does it work? I mean, a little bit of both. After you've done certain types of projects uh, that many times, you kind of know what will and won't work based on feel, like you said. But also, if we keep trying the same exact thing, but we keep getting to the same output, we probably need to change the way we approach the problem. Um, and I'm a really big advocate of that. So there, there's the saying, the definition of crazy is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. It's not the definition of crazy is trying the same thing over and over again. So you can change your approach and still get to an outcome that's really meaningful, but it's really important to be open to that feedback and to be open to um, the fact that you might not be doing things perfectly. So I'd, I'd love to hear a story about a big mistake that you've made in your career, a real huge fuck up where you were like massively face palming and, and red faced. And then you realized that actually over time it was a, a worthwhile mistake yeah, I won't tell you which company this happened at, um, but <laughs> uh, at one point in my career, we were running a campaign and the overall campaign budget, it was a test campaign, was quite small. It was maybe 20, 25,000. And we had spent about 5,000 of it, so about a fifth, fourth or a fifth. Um, and we realized that the way that the campaign had been set up was completely wrong. So we were meant to be optimizing towards a conversion. And unfortunately, the conversion pixel was not implemented in the right way. We were essentially optimizing towards nothing. And the particular point was to get an analytics read on how things would perform. So every dollar counted. I will not lie to you. I probably sweated more in those 30 minutes than I have ever sweated in my life. Um, but we quickly regrouped as a team. We sat down and we looked at what we did wrong and we looked at how we could fix it. And we paused the campaign, obviously. And when we made those changes, what was interesting is that we actually performed seven times better than we had originally projected because we were able to learn from those mistakes and make the implementation even better. And ultimately we still ended up hitting our targets within the budget that we were originally given, which was, I would say, you know, talking about the importance of being agile and being open to doing things differently completely south to do the piece of work. It was completely different than the way we intended to do the piece of work. And we ended up with a result that was even better than we could have anticipated. Right. Okay. So that's like a massive success story. Not really a, a fuck up. You just I kind mean, of, you didn't start very well, but you totally smashed it at the end. But I, I but I'll, I'll, t I'll accept that. And I, I, I agree that I think that the, the expensive mistakes that you make are the ones you learn from. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's okay to say that every mistake does have a silver lining, like even if it's not tomorrow, right? Everything that you do should change the way you think about things. And I'm proud to say that that's definitely been how I've approached not just my work challenges, but my personal challenges as well. Um, so I hope I continue to do that. But yeah, I would like for them not to cost $5,000 in the future. <laughs> or end uh, in a prison sentence, which I always think is probably a fairly costly mistake to make. But um, hopefully not in marketing, that shouldn't happen. So, um, so yeah, some, some useful advice there. So do you ever get asked to give advice to students? Uh, do you like, coach people or uh, try to inspire the next generation? And, and if so, what advice do you give to 
to a smart driven student who wants to get into the industry? So this is um, in the last five years, this is my third city. Quite a bit more coaching when I was in Chicago, uh, which is where I grew up and where I went to school. And I think what's interesting is I got asked to coach again for the first time about a month and a half ago. And the person who asked me to do it actually is a very senior executive at a holding group. So they could easily give the advice themselves filed and they wanted the perspective from someone who, you know, had, I would say semi recently joined the industry, had um, moved through different types of companies and different types of roles. And they asked me what actually makes someone stand out. And it was funny to think about all of the interviews that I've hosted over the last, you know, five to 10 years, all the different candidates that I saw, all the different CDs. What always makes someone stand out is what they do, but how they talk about it. So a lot of times we as people forget that the person that we're speaking to has a limited attention span, right? Like over the course of the day, you might talk to 200 people, 300 people. You're not going to remember that ever does. But when you're trying to break into trying to convince that interviewer that you are the one person out of the 200 that they see that they should hire, it's really important to stand out and to make yourself different. And the way that I've always done that is to talk about less about what I've done and more about what I've accomplished. So I always like to translate every single thing in my work life, in my CV, everywhere into KPIs. And I encourage every single person to do the same because it hasn't just been that you've created a report or you've run a campaign, you've generated incremental sales or you've made information less confusing to educate 20 more stakeholders. You have to remind the people that you're speaking to why they should care about what you've done. And that's your responsibility as the person speaking rather than their responsibility as the person listening. So you don't list out a list of features that you're capable of delivering. You, you uh, list out all the benefits that you've created with those features for, for previous employers. That is a great way of summing it up. Are you in technology by chance? <laughs> well, yeah, it's, well, it's, it's sales, right? It's, uh, you know, it's spin fundamentally, like make people understand why they, why they care about the thing you're talking about, which in this case is you. Uh, that, that, uh, that's really unusual advice for this podcast. So thanks for sharing that. Um, and so, uh, Camille, before we move on to the shiny new object, what new belief or behavior has had a huge impact on your career in the last five years? Ooh, um, <laughs> dashboards, I believe. <laughs> dashboards? Are you dashboards. kidding? <laughs> Go on then, tell me. Uh, <laughs> I don't think you'll probably get another podcast participant quite like no, that. No, brilliant. Uh, <laughs> um, so again, I keep mentioning this, but I've spent the last 10 or so years in some form of analytics. And it never used to be that we would talk about dashboards or data visualization. It would always be that we would talk about reports or insights or how do you turn that into something that people can use. And in the last, I would say, six years, I've noticed the word dashboard popping up more and more. And somehow dashboards have, one, actually created competition amongst the analysts, right? So you're now competing with a piece of technology rather than another human. And two is somehow um, they are expected to communicate with the same level of intelligence and eloquence that a human can. And I don't think that's a reasonable assumption, right? I, so for me, the reason that they've changed the approach and the way that I've tried to educate my teams to work 
is because dashboards are not going away. Their technology, their innovation, their automation, they're there to represent the data even when a human's not. But your job as an analyst, your job as the person analyzing the data, looking at the data, is to draw conclusions. And so if you can stay one step ahead of the dashboard, then you're in good shape. Um, and the reason that that's had a fundamental change in the way I work, and it's a good segue into my shiny new object after this, is it's forced me to think about not just the data that I have today, but the data that's going to come tomorrow. And what do I do with it? And how do I make myself as a human indispensable in a world where a dashboard can provide the same KPIs and metrics that I could have five years ago? So how do you do that? How do you, how do you plan for the data that you have tomorrow and to create value from, from you in representing that data? How do you go about that? I always like to think about what questions would I ask if I knew nothing. Um, so you're presenting this data set to someone who's never looked at it before. They're going to have questions. They're going to try and understand. How do you preempt those questions? How do you make sure if there's a big hole in what you're looking at? So we talked about me spending my own money to trial ad tech and my love of keyword tools. It's because I always found when we were doing social listening projects way back when is I always knew the why, but I never understood how much the why valued. And keywords were a really nice complement to qualitative analysis. And so by implementing those quant numbers, I was able to provide the context around how important are these people's opinions? Is this trending up or trending down? And that's something that a dashboard doesn't know to do. That's only something that I can tell a dashboard to do. Right. So it's a one question I always ask on this podcast is if, if this is new to someone, this, this approach and this belief, this behavior, what are, what are the easy ways of implementing what you just told me to someone who's not done it before? The easiest way is to go around a set of stakeholders that you trust or a set of people inside of your business, or even, you know, if you're not inside of a business, a set of friends and family and ask them what they would want to know about whatever topic you're trying to report on. So if you were trying to learn about, if I was trying to tell you about weather and patterns in the UK, go around and ask what are, what interests you about weather patterns in the UK? Do you care about regional analysis? Do you want it in Celsius or Fahrenheit? What would you do with this data if I gave it to you? Um, and build for the questions that people have rather for the specific metrics they tell you to put in. So I think that's a that's an absolute lovely point. What give the people what they want as opposed to what you think that may they might want? Because that um, and I, I'm also so interested to hear you talk about dashboards and and do you do you think they are going to change to become more controlled by voice technology, or do you think it's always going to be a, a keyboard mouse affair? So voice is an interesting one. For me, the entire concept of like consumer experiences, augmented reality, voice technology, it's something I would love to know more about. Um, but I think before we necessarily scale it as not just an industry, but probably as a marketing or marketing industry overall, I think we have to better understand what the consumer's expectations are from voice. So for example, would I ever want to control a dashboard using my voice or is it something that I'm doing in a cubicle where I don't want people to hear what I'm thinking I just want to be able to sit down and explore and until we do a little bit more research on people's expectations I don't think it's possible to say this technology is going to innovate 
the specific dashboard or the specific reporting tool. So I had a I had a client say to me the other day that uh, they wanted to say, Alexa, create me a new social ad campaign. And then they wanted it all to happen at that point. <laughs> and I was like, well, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get on there. Um, but yeah, I think that's, uh, that's a, really, a really nice way to, to sum that up. So it's shiny new object time. Your shiny new object is big data. <laughs> I, I think I know what that is, but can you describe to the audience what your understanding of big data is? And then we'll go into the detail. Big data is, there's no real definition. Um, where are you going now? Where's that train? <laughs> um, I don't know. I assume Paris or somewhere. Uh, um, I'm not, I am not on that train. Okay. Uh, yeah, big data, there's a million different definitions and there's not one specific one that people are using, like to think about it. And it does seem to resonate with big data practitioners as those, um, you know, peacocks are called is, uh, anything that's bigger than what you can work with on your local machine. So the second it no longer works on your laptop or on your desktop, it's technically big data. You'll have some folks tell you that it's petabytes of data. You'll have some folks tell you that it's terabytes of data. It doesn't really matter how much data it is. It's really just a different way of approaching the problem. So why is that your shiny new object? What is it about that that, uh, it's exciting to you. I mean, there's a lot of things that are exciting to me about it, but I thought it would be a good one um, because, you know, you, in some of the example podcasts and some of the example, example briefs that you shared, we talked about machine learning or artificial intelligence, and those are all based on a foundation of big data. What most people don't realize um, is that in order for any of those things to work, you actually have to not only get the architecture correct, which fine, you can probably hire some engineers who can help you with that, um, but also get your use cases correct. And that's the number one thing. I've seen too many examples of companies talk about big data, build all this infrastructure, and then either work with data that they could use Excel for, or alternatively, just move data from one place to another to another, and then not draw any insights or conclusions or even any outcomes from it. Um, so to me, it's really important to get the concept right so that we can actually start getting the outcomes right. So explain to me how that works for you in a marketing context. So what, give me an example of, of getting the right kind of data set up in the right way for you to action it. Well, let's not talk about the right kind of data. Let's, make, let's take that use case that you were just talking about, voice in a social media marketing campaign. You, you know, yes, we'll get right on it. Um, that's not a very detailed brief, I get it. But <laughs> if you were working with this particular client, let's pretend for six years, and you had every social media marketing campaign that they had ever run, or that their end user has ever interacted with, or every single user that's been to their website, or even if they have an app, every single person who's been inside of the app, right? Actually, you don't even need that much more detail in your brief. You know that they want to run a social media marketing campaign. Let's assume it's to drive conversion, just for the sake of it. And let's say that they already have the creative, 20 different types of creative that you could use. What big data would allow you to do is one, 
take all of those different types of data sources that I just mentioned, collect them in one place, but then also create uniformity around the data. And then you can start doing some really, really interesting things. You can build artificial intelligence that allows you to better understand, okay, these data sets predict that these types of variants will drive conversion. Or if your KPI changes from conversion to just clicks, these are the different variants that would influence that. And I talked about, you know, the different, to me, the USP of a human versus a dashboard is us being able to predict what comes next and us being able to plan for it. Uh, I think big data is the perfect example for it because when you're building these use cases, when you're building these architecture frameworks, you're not building for the data sets you have today. You're building for the data sets that you want to have tomorrow. And that's a really, really cool concept. So, how do you, how would a brand or a marketer who isn't in commerce data and analytics start to make a a, a short term impact when they don't have six years worth of data available and the app data is off with a different department or a different location and the I don't know, the uh, the the conversion data isn't isn't structured in the same way because what you described there is a kind of if you had all these things lined up perfectly then yes it would definitely you'd definitely be able to drive some insight but how what what do you do when it's a mess what's what's the sensible step to move forward well you hire someone who knows how to make sense of a mess i say that because it is literally some i was making the joke to someone it's very similar to forensic accounting which is, you know that there's this desired outcome. You have to get to it. You have these 20 different data sets. And what this person should be able to do is come in and understand what are the commonalities of these data sets? Do those commonalities lead to the outcome? And what are the steps that we have to take along the way in order to make sure that every single one of those data sets is surfacing that commonality? I'm basically putting it into very layman's words, but the concept in data engineering is just called ETL, which is extract, transform, and load. And with big data, you're actually starting to see different trends in that emerge. They're talking about extract, load, and then transform. So essentially you get all of the data you possibly can. You put it into a data lake of some sort, and then you build use cases on top of that, which is really cool if you're a marketer that doesn't know what you're gonna want in six months time. All you know is that you want to collect as much data as possible so that you can start filling in the holes that your business has. And it's also a really great way of scaling because it allows you to um, basically build one use case for one department, a different use case for another department. I guess one, the one thing that working in big organizations has taught me is that even if you have one data set, you're probably going to have five different departments that want to view it in five different ways. So what new types of big data are you excited about getting that you can't currently get your hands on? Uh, I don't know that there's... So the, re the, re the, reason I, the reason I ask is that um, one of the previous guests on this podcast was talking about uh, facial recognition data that WeChat are working with. Mm. And, what, and what they do is make assumptions about their, the user's state of mind based on their, what's going on on their face. And there's like 35 or 45 different facial triggers that will change the user experience of 
of the app or the experience. And I was I was wondering if, if you if you started accommodating for that kind of data coming in. And I think you made an absolutely brilliant point. They don't don't try and collect the data you need today, but the data you're going to need tomorrow. So is do you have an eye on the future in that sense? You are scaring me with the facial recognition data. Um, I side tangent, but very related. I had to make a new business account on one of the popular social media platforms today because I needed to log into some things that we use across the organization. Um, and actually, they asked me to upload a photo and to take a photo with my webcam so that they could compare that it was really who I said I was. And it creeped me out. It's not easy. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so I, and this is in the UK where GDPR is a thing, you know, you mentioned WeChat. So there are definitely more and more use cases for that starting to come. And this is, I'm not joking when I say it's a major social network. It's definitely one that you use at home. Um, so I think there's more use cases like that in terms of verifying uh, you are who you say you are and identity and all those things. My team is actually starting to work with it pretty cool concept. While we're not trying to work with biometric data because that would be slightly terrifying. <laughs> we are trying to use the imagery that we have from our own marketing campaigns to basically translate that we can work with. Um, so we're playing with some visual recognition APIs and we're also starting to look at what makes an image similar or different. It's very, very early days for that particular work stream. But I think it's really exciting because it starts taking the concept of you have this image that something that only humans can see, right? And if you turn that into features, which is something that big data can help you with, or if you turn that into bytes, which again is all in images, it's a collection of um, bytes, are you able to use big data processing stream to get to an outcome of how similar, how different is it? Um, and then if you do get to that outcome, why is it similar? What makes it better than the other ones? So I'm excited about those use cases, particularly when you start throwing in new media. I'm also keen to see how things like voice technology and augmented reality change that particular dynamic. Um, you know, there's already some legislation that's happening around the world around what marketers can and can't do with that type of data set, because it's really important to make sure that we remain ethical and we don't betray the trust of the consumer. Um, so I think as we scale those out, that's something that we definitely have to consider. You don't want to creep someone out. You don't, you don't want to be prohibitive in the way that you market either, right? The whole point of what we try to do is to bring inclusivity. It's not to create more silos. So how do you feel big data and creativity are going to be enemies or, or bedfellows? Because you, you talk about uh, visual recognition to analyze uh, ads or assets and you know, working out uh, tags or triggers. Um, and I, you know, I think that's a, that is a, a, is used um, for, by various different businesses. But it, do you think we're going to get to a point where we can absolutely track everything in every ad so that we can predict with absolute certainty what's going to work? Or, or do you think there's going to be a gooey, fluid, human, creative bit that always will play a part? I definitely think it will be a gooey, human, creative bit that will play a part. Um, but it's very similar to kind of where I see analytics. If we can free up people from doing the things that just take time but don't add value, 
they're going to find more and more ways to add value. So if I can tell you that something is consistently black and black works nine times out of 10, it's your job to figure out how do you apply that black to your particular brand or your image or black was a bad example. But um, I don't think that machine learning or AI or computers are ever going to be able to replace the spirit of innovation that humans bring. I think we'll leave it there. That's an absolutely lovely, lovely place to close it off. It was a, an excellent chat and thank you so much. If someone wants to get in touch with you and discuss the things you've been talking about, what is the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, you can email me. So, uh, Do you want to share your email address? Yeah. Uh, Go for it. Yeah. K-R-I-S-T-I-N-A. Yeah dot k-a-g-a-n-e-r at beamly b-e-a-m-l-y dot com i know i have a very long name so i'm sure they can also reach out to you and you'll put them in touch so if someone was going to send you an outreach email what goes into a great outreach email well hopefully don't try to sell me on something or ask if I can introduce you to someone in my company. Um, I love to start a conversation dialogue and hopefully we have mutual interests. I think that's probably the biggest thing to me right now. Yeah. Brilliant. Christina, thank you so much. What an absolute treat. I will see you on Thursday morning. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. It was a great first podcast. Fantastic. Thank you.